Good morning, Redemption Arcadia. Thanks for being here with us this morning. I'm going to read part of a psalm for us real quick. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Let's celebrate that this morning. For morning, for the rising sun, in the place of decision, where we hadn't come. Then I saw the horizon, and you, my boy, you became my vision, and you became my song. In the darkest night, in the middle of the fight, when there is no shown to me I will sing forever of your saving grace I will shout in battle my God is in this place in the darkest You 
confession of sin together. Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, and what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open to us a future in which we can be changed and grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image. Through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Amen. Sorry, y'all. Slight technical difficulties. No? Just, just double-click the next one. One after it. Let's go with that. There we go. Sorry, y'all.
thank you for the gospel, the story that we just sang, that you came and lived for us, the perfect life that we couldn't, 
God, and then you died the death that we should have died in our place. And God, because you are raised from the dead, now we can say hallelujah to you. We can live with your righteousness in God's eyes. You set us free from our sin, God. We are eternally thankful, and we will get to spend eternally, eternity thanking you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's feel free to take a seat. Thanks, band. And welcome, Redemption Church. Uh, we're glad you're here. If you're new here with us, whether in person or online, uh, we're glad you're here. Thanks for being here. Uh, we want you to know that we are one church in 10 local congregations throughout Arizona. We're gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. So this morning, we have a child dedication, so we're super excited for that. So before I invite them up, let me just remind us of what child dedications are and are not. They're not a replacement for baptism. That's, that's not the goal here, but it is something we see patterned in Scripture, and we want to follow that example. So they accomplish three main things. There's probably more, but these are the three main ones. One, it's an opportunity for you to get to know more of the families on our church really practically. So hopefully you're, whatever you need to do to remember names, hopefully you're doing that during this time. It's a reminder for all the parents in the rooms about some of the important ways God's called us to lead our families. And then lastly, it's an encouragement to us, the church family, that what we do, the, the way we live our lives are seen by the children in our church. It's an example that we need to be reminded of. Uh, that we're setting for these ones. And so let me go ahead and invite up the Davies. Come on up. Yeah. And Jesse, Jesse, can I have them use this mic? Is that okay? Okay. That'll be easier. So here it is when you guys are ready. And so let me start by saying this. The family was God's idea. And so he holds its history and its mission in the Bible. Discipleship by parents, as we'll see, is vital. But it's not to be done alone. Ideally, we want to see Christian parents and Christian churches collaboratively discipling kids to know and love Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Is he saying cheese? <laughs> oh, or, oh, people are taking pictures. Okay, okay. He knows. He's a pro. <laughs> Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 sets this bar for us. It tells us to love God with everything we have. And then for parents to teach this in the home, in everything we do. That's a high, high bar. But that's what we see in Scripture. So we're going to get to know them a little bit. So why don't you introduce yourself and your family to us? Let's see. Here we go. Good morning, everybody. I'm Ian Davey, and this is my beautiful family. My lovely wife, Allison. My amazing, smart, and energetic son, Jack. And my, uh, my sweet baby, Elle. There they are. And I think we have a picture, but they'll show that whenever they're ready. Oh, there it is. That sweet little Elle. It's nice. Hi, Jack. Hi. 
He's thinking about it. Hi. Hi. So first, let me start by just encouraging you guys um, to give the gift of, the, of a healthy marriage, one that's submitted to Christ, to your family. That's one of the best things you can do for them. And I didn't say a perfect family, a perfect marriage, because unfortunately, we haven't been able to do that. In my marriage, you probably won't be able to in yours either. So, But a, a marriage that's submitted to Christ is so important um, because, again, just like they see our members in our church living according to Christ, they see it even more so in the home, the ups and the downs. And what will be shown, what they'll remember the most, hopefully, is God's grace through it all. That in the joys, he was there. In the hard times, he was there. Uh, so showing them that through a healthy marriage is super important. And so parents, Ian and Allison, in bringing these kids to God's house today, uh, you are consecrating yourselves to God trusting in him and doing everything you can to encourage L to become a true disciple of Christ while you pursue the same thing. So I'm going to ask you three things. Hi, L. She's working on something there. At the end of each statement, I'll ask you to say, we will with God's help. So that's a recognition that our best laid intentions are submitted to God's help. We need his help for these things. So first, will you bring L up in the regular worship and teaching of the church? We're just going to plow through. It's okay. Things never go quite according to plan. We that, will. <laughs> Good enough. That's okay. Will you work to provide a home with your genuine faith and its ups and downs, joys and sorrows on display for them that the redemption and light of Christ might be what shines through? If so, answer, we will with God's help. We will with God's help. Will you work to include, uh, include others in this work, too, as you're able, including us in your definition of family, in community, reaching out for prayer, practical help, and guidance? If so, answer, we will with God's help. We will with God's help. And church, before God and one another, members of Redemption Arcadia, you have a responsibility in this as well. First, will you be faithful Christians? making Christ and his word your highest treasure so that these kids and others like them might grow up in your midst surrounded by the example of what we mean when we say all of life is all for Jesus. If so, answer, we will with God's help. We will with God's help. Lastly, will you work to serve and love the families of our church whenever possible? Recognizing your role, not to just be the example of Christ, but to be his hands and feet. If so, answer, we will with God's help. So church, reach out your hands now over this family and join me in prayer. God, we pray first for your blessing over them. We pray for a marriage between Ian and Allison that is uh, firmly fixed on you, Jesus, with the gospel truth of your death, burial, and resurrection as the center, because that's a foundation that won't change. God, we pray for Jack and L, God, that you would save them as early as possible, that they might put their faith in you and never look back. And God, we pray lastly that for us, the church community, that we would be family to them, seeking to find ways to serve whenever possible. By your spirit, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's thank them for coming up. Thank you, guys. And please stand for the reading of God's word.
Good morning. So the reading for today comes from the book of John, chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour has not yet come. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, Ben. Good morning, Arcadia. How is everybody? I'd like to hear from each of you individually. How are you? All right. Okay. Good. Good to see you. My name is Frank. If you're new, we're glad that you're here. Uh, there are four pastors that work here. Uh, they call me the lead pastor. I'm generally the one who's up here probably 35 Sundays uh, a year uh, doing uh, the sermons. Uh, but four other people, we've got Tyler who is over here, Tyler who is also just, we have two Tylers, so there was Tyler here at the keyboard, Tyler who was just up here, and then Trey who is our next gen um, pastor. So we're glad that you're here. Uh, if you're wondering about redemption, redemption is one church with 10 congregations in Arizona. We're gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe all of life is all for Jesus. A um, couple of things before we get started uh, first of all, on Tuesday night, I had the privilege and the honor of participating in a uh, conversation out at the Gilbert congregation uh, called uh, The Gospel, Race, and the Church. Uh, that was uh, uh, live-streamed on our Redemption Arizona YouTube channel, not the Redemption Arcadia YouTube channel, but Redemption Arizona. It's also been recorded, so you can go back and watch it. Uh, it's over 2,000 views now. I believe there were about 350 people who were there in person, including a few uh, people from Arcadia. Um, and we wanted to have a, a follow-up, a lo more localized follow-up conversation about that, if you are interested. Uh, and so this coming Wednesday night, I'm just going to be in here in the sanctuary from 6.30 to 7.30. I will have absolutely nothing to say unless you come and ask me questions. <laughs> so so uh, that's an opportunity for you to come and not hear me give you my agenda or preach, but rather for you to come. And if you uh, watched the events, if you had questions about it, there's an area where you wanted to go deeper, um, uh, come and talk to me. We'll, we'll have a conversation like that. So um, that's Wednesday night. The other thing, completely unrelated, terrible non sequitur, but I just felt compelled to talk about this a little bit before we get into John chapter uh, 8 today. Um, I've been, just in this season that we're in uh, for the last several months, I've been reading a lot, Ecclesiastes and Lamentations. Now, there are other books I've been reading as well, but especially in the Old Testament, I've been reading Ecclesiastes, which is considered wisdom literature, and believe me, there's a great deal of wisdom there, and Lamentations, which is a book of lament about uh, when things are really, really bad. Um, 
The book of Ecclesiastes I've been just deeply involved in, and uh, I, I have also been reading a book. I just finished it this morning, a book by Carl Truman. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of that guy. Uh, he wrote a book in 2019, I think it was, uh, called uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And I would highly recommend this book. I know, I, usually I wait till the beginning of the year to recommend all my books. Now I'm just doing it practically every week. But I, this is a great follow-up book, I think, to um, Irreversible Damage, which I talked about four or five weeks ago. Uh, this helps with the psychological, I'm sorry, the philosophical underpinnings of what's going on in our culture today. Uh, I found the book really helpful. But in the midst of that book, even though the book has nothing to do with Ecclesiastes, I think he wrote something that sums up the book of Ecclesiastes very well, and here's what he wrote. Our desire for consumption is never satisfied by procurement and possession. And I just want to drop that little bomb on you to think about. Um, maybe not when I'm preaching, but go ahead and think about it the rest of the week. Our desire for consumption is never satisfied by procurement and possession. We think it'll be satisfied by procurement and possession, but it's not. And that's exactly what Ecclesiastes is trying to tell us. And by the way, when we, first of all, this is not a message just for Arcadia. This is a message for anywhere in the world. It doesn't matter what your economic uh, stratus is. It doesn't matter. Everybody has this desire for consumption, and everybody believes it will be satisfied by procurement and possession. I'm not saying that we don't need to procure and possess things, but it's never going to satisfy us the way we think it will. He's right about that. And Ecclesiastes has the same message. The other thing we need to understand is it's not just about consumer goods. It's not just about getting the latest iPhone. Um, the desire for consumption also incorporates power, and status, and affirmation, and relationships, and sex. It, it encompasses all parts of life. And, and that I've just been noodling on that uh, all week long since I read it. I thought I'd drop that little bomb on you to think about as we move forward. Now, let's get into the book of John. We've been working our way through the Gospel of John. Um, Jesus is in the temple still. We need to understand that. Uh, this is still sort of in the wake of or even on the last day of the festival or feast of booths or feast of tabernacles. Last week we looked at the woman who was caught in adultery. And we talked about how this was sort of inserted, not in a chronological fashion, but just inserted in the text here. So we looked at it last week. Um, but let's, let's remind ourselves of, of the, the event that happened with this woman who was, quote, caught in adultery. Uh, Jesus in compassion, when this woman is brought to her, Jesus in compassion meets her where she is, but then in love commands that she not stay where she is. That was one of the most important take-home points of that message last week. In other words, we could say it this way. The gospel not only saves, but it transforms. The gospel both saves and transforms. The job of Jesus is not to save us and then let us stay where we are. The job of Jesus is not to save us and then affirm and celebrate where we are, but rather to empower us to move towards transformation and to move towards him and to move towards God. And that, what he did with the woman is the same with us. Jesus in compassion and mercy will always meet us where we are. We want to tell you at church, come as you are. 
But in love, he also calls us to be transformed by the gospel through a variety of things. He calls us to be transformed by the gospel through the filling of the Holy Spirit, for sure. He also calls us to be transformed by the gospel by reading and studying his word. Paul talks about that at length. Uh, he also calls us to be transformed by communion at the Lord's table and by co the community of the faith. In other words, being involved in your community of faith, being involved in your church, being involved in a, in a small group, in Bible studies and, and stuff, developing relationships of faith. So now what happens is um, we pick up in, in chapter 8, verse 12. Really, we kind of left off at 752. We're just going to continue now with the conversation that we left off at 752. And I'm just going to go verse by verse through um, the... 19 or 20 verses that we have today. Uh, ben did not read the whole passage. We didn't want him to read the whole passage, but we're going to go through verse 30. I'm just going to go verse by verse. That's the only passage we're going to look at today. So open your Bibles to John chapter 8. Have your Bibles out because you'll need to reference it as we go. The first two verses we'll look at, 12 and 13. Again, Jesus spoke to them, uh, kind of riffing off of 52, 752. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees, the religious professionals, said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself and your testimony is not true. So this is a key and I want to hit it again. I've already hit it twice. So I want to hit it again. Verse 12 um, actually chronologically follows 752. When the people on the last day of the feast are debating with Jesus about his claim that he gives rivers of living water. Anybody who believes in him from, from their heart will flow rivers of living water. We need to understand the context and what emerges here because it also sets up this statement that he's the light of the world that he says in verse 12 of chapter 8. So here's what's happening. At the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, a very important fall feast for the Jews... Uh, on the last day of that feast, a golden, a large, pure gold, golden container was carried by the priests from the Pool of Siloam. They would go and fill it with water from the Pool of Siloam. They would carry it into the temple, carry it through the temple. The people would make way, and they would celebrate, and they would clap, and they would recite verses as they did this. This was a big deal. And they would take that water, and then they would pour it on the, on the temple mount, and, and it was, it was a, this, this whole rite of carrying the water in was symbolic of several things. And if you were in that context and in that culture, you understood all of the things that it represented. So, for instance, the water symbolizes life because it, it represented the water that's needed for good harvests. And good harvests was one of the things that was celebrated at the Feast of Booths. It was the, it was the present day thing that was celebrated at the, at the Feast of Booths. So they would, they would pray that this water would continue so that next year they would also have a good harvest. So rivers of living water. This, this um, rite also harkens to Moses and the time when, he, when the, the, the Jews were in the wilderness and they needed water to survive, to be saved, and he beat the stone and the water came out of it, the miracle of the water. And then the water also symbolizes salvation because one of the verses that the people would chant as the priests were carrying uh, the golden container of water through the temple was Isaiah 12.3, which says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
So when Jesus says, in the midst of that rite, anyone who believes in me will have um, rivers of living water flowing out of their heart, he is saying unequivocally and clearly to the people, I am your salvation. I am the one who has come to save you. That's clear to them, and that's why there are people who are believing in him and excited, but there are a number of people, mostly the people with power in their context, who are very upset about him. And so they ask Jesus about his origins. The Pharisees, the professional religious people, they come and they, they don't like this, and so they, say, they want to ask about his origins because they don't believe the claims that he's making about himself. And in verse 8.12, our first verse, he responds by saying, well, I'm also the light of the world. So this is one of the seven great I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. And again, it's a reference to another rite. There, yeah, there are a lot of rites during the Feast of Booths, okay? And it's a reference to another rite that takes place during this annual feast. It's the lighting of the four lamps in the temple courts, which inaugurates a yet another festive time of celebration. And the celebration is because the lamps, these four lamps that are lit, represent the pillar of fire that the Jews followed in the wilderness after their escape from Egypt during the Exodus. So again, Exodus is in the background of everything that's going on here. There's a present-day application, and there is this historical uh, Torah application that is constantly going on. So here's what we need to see here. Jesus constantly, continuously tells the people that he is not only the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and scriptures, but he is also Yahweh come in the flesh. He is God in the flesh. He's our salvation. He's our redemption. He's our restoration. He says, I am the bread. He says, I give rivers of, of living water. He says, I am the light of the world. When we get to chapter 10, he's going to say, I'm the good shepherd. Everybody who heard that knows that he's saying, I'm God. Because God is the ultimate good shepherd. He also says, I'm also the door to the sheep. In other words, nobody can get to salvation. Nobody can get to the kingdom of God except through me. He's making all of these claims about himself with these I am statements that they all understand clearly. But this is so troubling for many of the people. It's clearly borne out in the response given by the Pharisees in, in verse 13. In fact, the Pharisees try to use Jesus' own words to trap him, but void of context. They use his own words, but void of context. They reference back in chapter 5, verse 31, when Jesus says, I can't alone bear witness about myself. He said that in chapter 5, verse 31. He says, I understand. I get the, I get the law. I, I wrote the law. I know the law. I'm the fulfillment of the law. I understand that I cannot alone bear witness about myself. So they now use this statement against him. But in chapter 5, if you remember, after verse 31, Jesus goes on to say, so I have three other witnesses. Yes, I'm one of the witnesses, but my father is also a witness. John the Baptist is also a witness, and the Holy Spirit has also witnessed to my being the Messiah. I have four witnesses, and not only that, if you would read the Torah and read what Moses said, you would know that I'm the fulfillment of everything that uh, the Old Testament talks about. So there's kind of a fifth witness there as well. So Jesus answers back to the Pharisees again, verses 14 through 18. Jesus says, if, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. 
Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is I, not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So here he just focuses on the fact that he and his Father uh, bear witness. So consider this. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, and yet... In this entire passage, all the way through to verse 30, it just seems that the questions they ask and the statements they make come from a place of utter darkness. I'm the light of the world, and yet they're most comfortable in their darkness. They're refusing to allow light to reveal anything. Darkness reveals absolutely nothing except perhaps the fact that your heart loves to stay in darkness. It's the only thing it might reveal. So Jesus, in verse 15, says, I judge no one. Here's what he means by that, because he goes on to explain what he means by that. We need to see this, because people will use this verse out of context all the time. Jesus never judges anyone. Well, you need to understand what he's saying there. Here's what he's saying. I judge no one according to the dark worldly standards in which all of you, you religious professionals, are so invested in. When I judge, I judge as God, and I judge in collaboration with the Father. So my judges pure and holy. My judgment is pure and holy and perfect. So Jesus reiterates once again that he's not only the one, he's not the only one who bears witness to himself, once again fulfilling the Mosaic law. There are other witnesses. But he also brings in this reality that he's not from this world. Although he created this world, he's not from this world. And therefore, he says, you're not with me if you don't believe in me. And you will not be able to come with me to heaven. You're not going to be able to go where I am going. You don't know where I came from. You don't understand that. You don't know my father, and therefore you can't possibly know where I'm going, and you can't be with me to go there. Again, we've been saying this a lot. Jesus is highly differentiated from us because he comes from the father, and he was with the father. It's an important detail. And things are getting quite testy with the religious professionals now. They do not like where this is headed. We can see when Jesus calls them out how badly they judge which is something that the professional religious people really took a great deal of pride and pleasure in, their, their ability to judge others. In fact, that's kind of what they built their, their entire power and status trip on, was the fact that they got to be the ones to judge everybody else. But Jesus is essentially telling these guys, your problem is that you pretty yourselves up on the outside, you wear the right clothes, you say the right things, you're experts at virtue signaling, but the reality is, is that you're dead inside. You can't judge correctly if you're dead inside. But I'm from the Father. The Father and I are God. We judge perfectly. So verses 19 and 20, and again, it stays very testy with these guys. And they said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because the, his hour had not yet come. So when they ask, where is your father? They're asking about his earthly father. They have no idea that he's talking about the heavenly father. They're asking about his earthly father, again revealing that they're confused and struggling to keep up with Jesus' teaching. So Jesus tells the religious professionals, he just said, you don't even know God. You are thinking strictly in human terms, strictly according to your flesh and your pride. You're so consumed with your power and pride that you can't even understand that when I speak of my father, I'm talking about the very God that you claim to represent. So much irony here. 
By the way, a point of information you may be asking, well, where's the treasury in the temple? The treasury of the temple is actually, is the place, it's where they would take the offerings for the temple. They would take the temple offerings there, but it was in this kind of weird liminal space that was between the outside of the temple and the inside of the temple. When you stood in the, quote, treasury of the temple where they took the offerings, you were sort of neither out of the temple nor in the temple. Our offering boxes are back there, kind of in the corners, sort of, yeah, there's a hand wrap back there raising, okay. That's where our offering box is. That would be the treasury of redemption Arcadia back there. And, and it's kind of weird where they are because when, when, you're, when you're putting your offering in there, you're kind of not really in the lobby but kind of not really in the sanctuary either. You're in this liminal space in between, which I think is interesting because I have noticed, I'm on a riff now way off the topic, but anyway, I've noticed on Sundays after service, a lot of people like to gather right around that area to talk and, and connect and meet after. This is kind of what Jesus is doing. You know, people are putting in their offerings and they go, oh, hey, Jesus, let's, you know. So they're kind of gathering around that area. Anyway, let's move on. Amen. Verse 21. <laughs> so he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So here you go. With that verse there, the stakes get raised. Jesus is doubling down. He's going for broke, however you want to frame this. Jesus is again revealing the consequence of not believing in him, only it's getting starker and blunter. He says, you will die in your sin. And we've all heard the phrase before, uh, dead man walking. Uh, it's, what, it's what is said when a brand new prisoner is assigned to death row, and they're making that first walk to their cell. The truth is that we are all dead men walking in our sin. I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend, dead persons walking. All of us without Jesus in our sin are dead persons walking. So the call is to come to Jesus, to embrace Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to trade our sin for his righteousness and to be given from Jesus life everlasting. And then verses 22 through 25. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. There is there's just so much irony in these four verses here. Uh, verse 22 is rooted in self-righteousness. They already accused him in the last chapter, chapter 7, of going to the Gentiles. They say, what do you mean we can't go? So the last time Jesus said, you can't come where I'm going, they said, well, you must be going to the Gentiles. And of course, the Jewish religious professionals would never go to the Gentiles because they were unclean, and that would, that would just be a travesty. So they assumed that he was going to the Gentiles. They would never do that. Now, they assume that the only way they can't go where Jesus is going is if he commits the atrocious, supposedly God-separating sin of killing himself, which a self-righteous, pious, religious Jew in the first century would never, ever, ever do. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, you won't believe in me, so you can't come with me into heaven, into the presence of Yahweh, into the presence of the Father. And in verse 23, Jesus simply tells them again, probably further annoying them, you are so rooted in worldly, horizontal thinking and worldly systems 
that you can't even see the truth even though it's standing right in front of you. Jesus says you're dead in your sin. You're dead in this world. You're dead in yourselves. You're dead in your religion. And you're blinded by your arrogance. You're blinded by your pride. And you're blinded by your culture. And it's not to say that any of those things that they're dead in or that they're blinded by are necessarily bad. But they've elevated those things far above actually knowing God and submitting to him. And everything that Jesus says to them are all similar messages that Jesus would have for us today. And it's not because he's mad at us. It's not because he doesn't love us. It's not because Jesus is cruel and capricious. The reason he would say those things to us is because he loves us. And he wants us to know him and have life. Yet in their situation, their destiny continues to show unabated because they ask, well, who are you? And I just imagine Jesus shaking his head. It's not in the text, but he's got to be like, I've been showing you. I've been telling you. Look at my works. He says, it's not me. It's you. It's not me. You're the problem. You, you, you need to have eyes to see and ears to hear. And this is important. This question they ask is indicative of something known as willful ignorance. So what is willful ignorance? Here it is. Willful ignorance is being so afraid of the truth that we willfully, purposefully ignore it and then hope that our ignorance is an excuse that we can count on later when we suddenly face the consequences. So are you willfully ignorant? We all are at some point about certain things. Don't be willfully ignorant about Jesus. Let me ask you this. I've experienced this, so, um, and I'm sure many of you have based on my conversations with police officers. You ever been pulled over by a police officer and you tell them, hoping for clemency, officer, I didn't know, and they tell you ignorance is not a defense as they write you the ticket? There you go. Verses 25, by the way, I'm not saying Jesus is a police officer, okay, so don't, don't come to that conclusion. Verses 25 through 29. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, you're going to know. This is a reference to the impending crucifixion, lifted up on the cross. That's what he's talking about. So Jesus knows his mission, and he knows exactly how his mission is going to be manifest. And then he says, when I'm lifted up, when I'm crucified, then you will know that I am he. Then you'll know that I'm the Messiah, that I'm the one. But it's, it's, it's critical to understand there's a little nuance here, a little bit of a difference here. Uh, we need to understand that Jesus is not saying that they will at that time know in joyous salvation. That's not the type of knowing that Jesus is telling them they will know. Rather, he says they'll know by coming to the terrifying conclusion that they murdered the wrong guy. It's not knowing in a believing salvific way 
but rather it is knowing in a, yes, I know that he's the Messiah, but I still won't embrace it way. If you ever read James chapter 2, verse 19, James writes, even the demons believer believe and shudder. See, many know that Jesus is God. Even demons know that Jesus is God. But that doesn't mean that they accept that he is God, that they know him in a way that is salvific. And so what Jesus tells these guys here is not to comfort them, but to warn them. What he's telling them is not to comfort them, but to warn them. We live today now in what's known as a therapeutic culture. And we're not allowed to speak words of warning to people, only words of comfort. That's the culture that we live in today. Here's a question I asked myself as I was putting this together. Why do we in our culture assume, teach, and believe that warning others of impending problems is somehow unloving? If you tell me something that I don't like, even if it's true, that's unloving. You're demonstrating that you don't love me. Here you go. I hear this quite often. It's unloving for you to tell me what I, that I shouldn't do what I want to do. It's unloving for you to tell me that I shouldn't do what I want to do. And then the question comes, well, what if what you want to do will destroy your life and destroy others? I think it is loving to help you preserve your life and not make a mistake. And the answer is no, you just don't love me. In fact, you should celebrate with me that I'm going to do this foolish, self-destructive thing. They don't say foolish and self-destructive. But it's not just a matter of keeping our mouths shut and letting them go about their business. It's that we're now called to affirmation and advocacy for what they're about to do. And if you don't do that, you don't love somebody. I don't get, I don't get it. I don't have a box in my brain for it. I, I, I don't understand it. Here you go. It's going to get really heavy in here for just a minute. Really heavy. I used to think that at least parents would never fall into this trap. I used to think that. I used to think that there is one class of person in this world, a parent and their child, where the parent would understand that it's out of love that you will prevent a child from destroying their life. But that's no longer true either. It's no longer true. Many parents today, their 10-year-old comes home from school and tells them that they want puberty blockers. Many parents will respond with, yes, of course. Many parents today, their 14-year-old comes home and says, I need to engage in transition hormones. And the parent says, yes, let's get to the gender clinic right away. No questions asked. Many parents today, their 16 or 17-year-old comes home and says, I want transition surgery. Oh, you bet. Can't wait. I was hoping this day would come. It's pretty amazing. And I know maybe in your circles you don't see it. It's not happening in your tight little circle. It's happening everywhere. It is happening. Parents have been sold a bill of goods. Parents have been told by culture, by the academy, by the government, and by some churches that it is unloving to tell your child not to destroy their lives, that you are just to affirm what they're going to do. That's what we live in today. That's what is going on today. 
Jesus was crucified because he spoke the truth. Jesus was crucified because he spoke the truth. And by the way, he was crucified not only for speaking the truth, but he also spoke it in love. So even speaking it in love is not a guarantee that you won't be persecuted and oppressed for speaking the truth, that you won't be vilified, that you won't be uh, called out, that, that, that you won't be called any number of ism or phobia names for speaking the truth. Be prepared for that. You and I will be persecuted, oppressed, and marginalized in this world for speaking the truth. You can count on it. But there is good news, and here it is. As we'll see in the last verse for today, speaking the truth will also bear fruit. Here it is, verse 30. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. It's a shame that we tend to remember... We tend to, re and I'm guilty of this, as guilty of this as anybody, we tend to remember the people who push back against us more than the people who say yes to Jesus. I think because we tend to remember pain more than we do celebration. But there is fruit in speaking the truth. There is fruit. People will believe. God will move. The Holy Spirit will open people's eyes. As we wrap up, I want to just go back to verse 28 and talk a little bit more about this idea of Jesus being lifted up. And when he says, I'm going to be lifted up, he means on the cross, crucifixion. Uh, there, there is a shadow of the idea of Moses holding up the snake for the salvation of his people who are being bitten by the snakes in Exodus. There's a little bit of that there. There's also the idea of lifting up Jesus in word and deed. We lift up Jesus every week here at Redemption Church. We lift up Jesus every week here at Redemption Church. We are reminded every week of the good news that our sin is crucified with Christ. I, I've, um, in this church, the last church I led, Paradise Valley Community Church, the Bible camp that I teach at in Iowa, all kinds of Christian, ostensibly Christian contexts. It's not unusual for somebody to come up to me and say, man, you're really stuck on this Bible and Jesus stuff. Well, what else are we supposed to talk about here? People Magazine? New York Times? Is that what you want to hear about? There are some places that do that. Yes, we are stuck on Jesus. We are stuck on the Bible. We are gospel-centered and we are outward-focused. And we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. We're, we are going to lift up Jesus every single week that you come here. You're going to get a dose of Jesus. We'll proclaim the gospel every week. And then we'll suggest to you that you proclaim the gospel every week to yourselves. Every day. Every hour. I preach the gospel. That's my job. That's my vocation. I get paid for it. I live in this milieu all week long. And yet, if I don't also preach the gospel to myself every single day, I'll forget. And I'll allow just the junk of this world to move me to places that I don't need to go and I don't want to go, ultimately. 
We need to proclaim the gospel to ourselves. And the reason we need to do that is because we are yoked to Jesus. We are attached. <clears throat> the, the vision of the Bible is that the two have become one. It's not just we're standing next to Jesus. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. We are yoked to him. We are abiding in him. We know him, and we're not yoked to abiding in or pursuing and knowing the counterfeit gods of this world. So ask yourselves, as we do every week here on staff at Redemption Arcadia, we ask this question at some point every single week. What are you yoking yourself to that is not Jesus? Because Jesus is the one. He proclaims it, he demonstrates it, and then he went to the cross to affirm it and to forgive us. And then God raises him from the tomb to give us everlasting life. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the life, the death, and the resurrection of your son. We're grateful for that. We just pray that we would, we would remember that you don't call us to a life of ease, but you call us to a life of salvation and abundance. Help us to understand that. Help us to understand that it comes from you. It comes from the, the resurrected life that you give us, and it comes from the filling of the Holy Spirit. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to uh, sing one more song together. We're going to have our time of reflection and response. We're going to come to the, metaphorically speaking still, we're going to come to the communion table. If you don't have your communion kit, there are some in the, in the lobby. It would be a good time now to go ahead and go grab one. Remembering that the wafer, the bread, is the body of Christ, and that the cup, the juice, the wine, is the, is the blood of Christ the new covenant in Christ poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And that when we do this, when we take this sacrament, we are confessing our sin. We're proclaiming that we have embraced Jesus. And we are celebrating that we've been given life everlasting. So let's do that now.
What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a beautiful name it is. Nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is. The name. And now lastly, as a benedictory prayer, I was reading Psalm 62, verse 8, and thought this would make a good prayer for us this week. So my prayer for us is that this week God would empower you by his Holy Spirit too, like verse 8 says, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Amen. Let's go live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next Sunday.